Welcome to this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara, where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. Well, we're heading into almost the official start of summer. No, it's not like summer, June summer, but it's summer symbolically. Memorial Day weekend, where I'm from in Jersey, Memorial Day weekend is the official start of summer. Everybody goes down the shore, all the pools open. It's great. So I'm in Washington. Our pool will open. So I'm excited about that. I was going to go down the shore, but it's going to be cold in Jersey. It's going to be a little chilly, but it's going to be like in the 80s here. So I'm looking forward to it. I love summer. It's so much fun. Lots to do. Nice and warm. And who doesn't love summer? Summer's awesome. So hoping everybody has plans for Memorial Day weekend and did some great things. I, um, Memorial Day weekend is also something that a tradition in my family that my grandfather used to uphold every year until he passed away and that he passed away in 2016. Yeah. 2016. But my grandfather was a world war II veteran. Oftentimes you'll hear me talk about my grandfather being a police officer, which he was for 40 years. And, but he was also a world war II vet and he was a member of the American Legion. So every Memorial Day weekend, he would sell poppies. And a lot of people don't know what poppies symbolize. And Memorial Day weekend is more than just opening up barbecues in the beginning of summer and pools on the shore. It's really to honor our men and women in, in uniform who made the ultimate sacrifice, who gave their lives for their country. So my grandfather, he would sell the, uh, he would sell the poppies with the American Legion and he would always make a killing because my grandfather was a schmoozer. He was very charming. But um, I always use this time of year to kind of remind people what the poppies symbolize. And it's something from World War I. And it, it comes from a, a poem called In Flanders Field. And after World War I, the poppy basically flourished in Europe. And some scientists actually have a, uh, an explanation for this. They say that after all of the um, rubble was left over from the war in places like France and Belgium, that it actually, the soil became enriched with lime. And that lime in the, was like a fertilizer. So from the dirt and the mud grew these beautiful red poppies all over Europe. So it became the symbol. It, it symbolized the red poppy to symbolize the blood shed during battle following the wartime poem I was telling you about called In Flanders Field. So, and they talk about the poppies there. So that poem was actually written by Lieutenant Colonel John McRae. He was a doctor and he served on the front lines. So in 1920, the poppy became the official flower of the American Legion and it was used to memorialize the soldiers who fought and died in World War I. And then in 1924, they started the distribution of poppies. It became a national program of the American Legion. So this is something that's been around for almost 100 years with the American Legion. And my grandfather used to participate in that. It helped raise his money for the American Legion and programs and stuff for veterans. So it's cool. So May 24th is National Poppy Day. That's coming up. That's this Friday, uh, the Friday of Memorial Day weekend. So if you see someone out there selling poppies or if you have... Uh, you know, like a fake poppy, wear it because it, it really is to pay homage to the active duty military personnel, their families, 
um, you know, people who served not only the fallen, but it also supports the living who still wear the uniform. So that's my little spiel on Memorial Day and poppies. And anyone who knows me knows that I keep one of the poppies that my grandfather sold in my car. It's always on my hangs from my rear view mirror. I've had it for many, many, many years. And so it's my way of always honoring my gramps and, and what he did and our men and women in uniform who gave their lives. So that's my little bit of, of history for today for that. But May 24th, National Poppy Day. Well, um, with that, since we since Memorial Day is this this week, it's quickly approaching. I decided I wanted to have on um, two guests actually um, coming up in this episode. First guest is Ellie Honig. He is a CNN legal analyst. He's been on the show before. He's a friend of mine, friend of the show, and um, I had him on when the Mueller report and Bill Barr first dropped. Um, when Barr had the summary and trying to decide, well, what does this all mean? What's happening? Well, I decided to bring Ellie back on to, 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 because everything came full circle now. And he was still reserving judgment about Bill Barr at that point. And everybody was. People really, really weren't quite sure how he was going to handle all of this. Well, most people probably didn't predict that he was going to become a complete Trump toady and act like Trump's fixer, like Roy Cohn. I just don't think most people, most legal experts thought that Bill Barr would disgrace himself the way he has. So Ellie's back to talk about where we are, why he thinks Bill Barr is a disgrace, and to talk a little bit about the the congressional subpoena power, what's going on there, why, how is this White House defying all these subpoenas, what's the next step? So we're going to talk about that with Ellie. And then with Memorial Day approaching, like I said, um, it was been reported a couple days ago that Donald Trump is considering a bunch of pardons for military men that are accused of war crimes. Now, this has caused a ruffle, obviously, throughout the ranks. And, um, you know, I, I wanted to bring someone on who had experience in this area. So Glenn Kirshner is joining me. He is a 30-year veteran federal prosecutor. He also spent six years in the JAG Corps in the Army. So he's not only been a, a, a civilian prosecutor, but he was a military prosecutor. And he tweeted a really passionate tweet storm about this that caught my attention. So I wanted to bring him on the program to talk a little bit more about this and why he's so outraged by the prospect of Trump pardoning some of these guys. So stay tuned for him. So first Ellie, then Glenn. I think you guys will enjoy them. I'm not going to talk long, um, too long this time because both interviews are lengthy. And I just think that the substance of those interviews, you guys will really, really enjoy both of them. So I'm going to talk just about a couple things before I get right into the interviews with Ellie and Glenn. Glenn's also an MSNBC analyst. So I, you know, I try to be fair. I bring my CNN folks on. I bring people on from MSNBC because it's all love. If you're honest and you're telling the truth, you can be on my show. So it doesn't matter. That's why nobody from Fox is on my show. <laughs> um, except for maybe Chris Wallace and Shep. They can come on. But anyway, if you guys want to come on my show, I'd love you. Love to have you on. Um, uh, what else is happening? Oh, so over the weekend, I uh, saw... Justin Amash, Representative Justin Amash, sent out some tweets, first Republican to actually support impeachment for Donald Trump. So, of course, this was big news because all these other Republicans have been relatively quiet through this whole 
Mueller report and and Trump has just been acting even more insanely since the Mueller report came out. I mean, this is not the behavior of someone who's exonerated, is it? I don't think so. And Justin Amash, who is really more of a libertarian, I mean, he does identify as a Republican, but he's very libertarian. I don't agree with him on everything, especially on foreign policy, but he has been a Trump critic from the very beginning. And although he is an outlier, he is an independent thinker, and I give him a lot of credit for finally coming out and saying, look, here's what I think about after I finally had a chance to review the Mueller report. This is what I've come to the conclusion. These, these are the conclusions I've come to. And I'm just going to read his tweets because I think it's important for people to hear. And I agree with him 100%. I went on, on CNN over the weekend and said as much and gave him credit for it. He certainly is a profile in courage given the craven behavior of all these Republicans who freaking know better they know, and they know that Justin Amash is 100% right, but they're too much, they're, they're cowards and they won't risk it. There's even a story in Politico out that says that, the, that Republicans are, senior Republicans are unsettled by Trump's claims of sweeping immunity. Basically, Republicans are saying, well, we're not really comfortable in him just disregarding subpoenas and thinking that the legislative branch has no oversight over the executive. Okay, well, that's great. Thank you for stating the obvious. But what the hell are you guys going to do about it? Nothing. They're not going to do anything about it because they're worried about losing a damn election. So that's nice that you're admitting that, yeah, well, it kind of is a problem. Well, it doesn't mean shit if you're not going to do anything about it. Same thing with Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney was on State of the Union with Jake Tapper over the weekend And he was asked about Justin Amash's comments and about impeachment. And Romney's another one. Dude, you can't play both sides like this. Either stand up or don't. But Romney's already shown us who he is. So I'm not putting my eggs in the Romney basket because he's not going to stand up and do the right thing when it matters. He's not. He's wishy-washy as hell, always has been. And just because he's now in a safe seat in Utah as senator... That hasn't changed. So I talk about a little bit about the the Romney interview with Ellie as well. So stay tuned for more comments on that. But I want to read Justin Amash, uh, his his tweet storm over the weekend, because I think it's important. He said, here are my principal conclusions. One, Attorney General Barr has deliberately misrepresented Mueller's report. Two, President Trump is engaged in impeachable conduct. Three, partisanship has eroded our system of checks and balances. Four, few members of Congress have read the report. I offer these conclusions only after having only after having read Mueller's redacted report carefully and completely, having read or watched pertinent statements and testimony, and having discussed this matter with my staff who thoroughly reviewed materials provided with me provided me with further analysis. In comparing Barr's principal conclusions, congressional testimony and other statements to Mueller's report, it's clear that Barr intended to mislead the public about special counsel, counsel Robert Mueller's analysis and findings. Let me just say for a second, this is a pretty big deal because he's right, but he's finally calling out what Bill Barr has done, this month-long PR campaign to mislead people about what's in the report because they know, these Trump people know, the majority of the American people aren't going to read 448 pages. They're not. And they're counting on the ignorance of the American people. 
So it takes people like Justin Amash and others to constantly, you know, have this drumbeat of that's not true. That's not true. And this is why and backing it up. He goes on to say, Barr's misrepresentations are significant, but often subtle, frequently taking the form of sleight of hand qualifications or logical fallacies, which he hopes people will not notice. Under our Constitution, the president shall, quote, be removed from office or impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors. While high crimes and misdemeanors are not defined, the context implies conduct that violates the public trust. Contrary to Barr's portrayal, Mueller's, Mueller's report reveals that President Trump engaged in specific actions and a pattern of behavior that meets the threshold for impeachment. He goes on. In fact, Mueller's report identifies multiple examples of conduct satisfying all the elements of obstruction of justice, and undoubtedly any person who is not the president of the United States would be indicted based on such evidence. Impeachment, which is a special form of indictment, does not even require probable cause that a crime, example, obstruction of justice, has been committed. It simply requires a finding that an official has engaged in careless, abusive, corrupt, or otherwise dishonorable conduct. Well, I'd say Trump is fits all those three, all those categories. While impeachment should be undertaken only in extraordinary circumstances, the risk we face in an environment of extreme partisanship is not that Congress will employ it as a remedy too often, but rather that Congress will employ it so rarely that it cannot deter misconduct. That's an important point that he makes because he's saying, look, I'm not worried about Congress doing this, impeaching people too much. I'm worried about Congress not doing its duty and not impeaching enough when it's warranted. Like now, right? I'd say this is a worthy situation for impeachment without question. He says, our system of checks and balances relies on each branch's jealousy, guarding its powers and upholding its duties under our Constitution. When loyalty to a political party or to an individual trumps loyalty to the Constitution, the rule of law, the foundation of liberty crumbles. Amen, Justin Amash. Amen. That's what we're looking at right now. If this president is allowed to get away with his behavior like this, what message does that send to other presidents moving forward or public officials? There has to be accountability for this. There has to be. And Congress needs to get off its ass and do what they're supposed to do and stop running for the hills, avoiding their, their responsibilities. Sometimes it's not easy to make do the right thing. It really isn't. Amash finishes with this. He says, America's institutions depend on officials to uphold both the rules and spirit of our constitutional system, even when to do so is personally inconvenient or yields a politically unfavorable outcome. Our constitution is brilliant and awesome. It deserves a government to match it. Drop the mic, Justin Amash. Yes. The thing about this, though, is that there are dozens, I guarantee you, dozens of other members of Congress who feel exactly the way Justin Amash does. 
but they just don't have the balls to stand up and say it. Because if they did, there would be bipartisan support to impeach Donald Trump. The same way that Republicans stayed with Nixon until the tapes were revealed. That was like two weeks before his resignation, by the way. A lot of people forget that. Republicans stood by Nixon with all of the stuff that Nixon was doing until the tapes came out. So what's it going to take for Republicans? I don't know. I don't know. But all this stuff going on is pretty significant. It just is. And Trump's behavior continues to get more and more alarming. And now it's going to the courts. The violation of these subpoenas, the you know, his crazy tweets about things, the intimidation of, of McGahn and, and not letting Mueller testify and these dubious claims of executive privilege now, just a delay. The judiciary branch is not going to have it. You know, they're kind of our last line of defense. Since the Congress has abdicated its responsibilities thus far, well, now it's up to the judges. And uh, I talk a little bit more with Ellie and both Glenn Kushner about some of the cases that are ongoing right now that these judges are not they're they're not too happy with the Trump administration's approach to trying to avoid congressional oversight and Trump has been in a a complete I call them Trumper tantrums when he goes on these tweet storms he's been in a Trumper tantrum for a couple of days now He's been tweeting about sleepy Joe Biden because Joe Biden had his official kickoff event in Philadelphia over the weekend. Very successful. He's done a great job. All the polling shows that he's pulling ahead, pulling away from the pack. I mean, it's still early, but people thought maybe, oh, just the initial bump and he'll lose some support. No, he seems to be maintaining his support, if not increasing it, depending on which poll. Trump is in trouble in the Midwest and in places like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, places he needs to win if he thinks he's going to have any chance at re-election. Trump also went off on Mayor Pete, Pete Buttigieg, who had an excellent showing at a Fox News town hall on Sunday evening. He even got a standing ovation that took Chris Wallace, was the moderator, took Chris Wallace by surprise. Oh, standing ovation. Mayor Pete's an impressive guy. I don't agree with all his progressive stances. No, of course not. But I'll tell you what, he's thoughtful and he's smart and he would do a hell of a better job than the guy we've got now. So Trump is on a tear. You know, anytime he feels nervous, that's what he does. He starts insulting and he starts tweeting like a crazy person. And um, the New York Times is once again in his crosshairs because they had another big story about the fact that Deutsche Bank which is a big German bank, international bank, that's had its run-ins with the financial regulators over money laundering accusations, particularly with Russians. So Deutsche Bank has gotten themselves in trouble in the past. They've paid hundreds of millions of dollars in fines over illicit financial activity. Well, Deutsche Bank also happens to be one of the only banks that's done business with Donald Trump since he went bankrupt four times in the 90s. They continue to do business when everybody else wouldn't because they felt that Trump was too much of a financial risk. So Deutsche Bank is also in the process of being subpoenaed for, excuse me, for Trump's financial records. And they're going to end up having to comply. 
And Trump is fighting like hell because they don't want to reveal that. Well, the New York Times story gives a little more insight into why Trump probably doesn't want Deutsche Bank to hand over his financial records. Because his, in 2016 and 2017, transactions made by Trump and his organizations and Jared Kushner were flagged for potential illegal activity. A what's called a suspicious activity report was generated. Same thing happened with Michael Cohen, by the way. Um, that that he, he was doing some interesting things and a, it's called a SARS report was generated with him and he ended up in jail for a number of reasons, including financial crimes. But the woman, the whistleblower who discovered these irregularities, who wanted them to be reported to the government, she was fired ultimately from her job. She was demoted and then fired after years of being a decorated employee because she mentioned to management at the bank, hey, there's some things that ain't right here doing her job. And the management of the bank was like, no, nah, that's all right. We No need to report, report this to the government. Well, why the hell not? And Deutsche Bank should have to answer for that. We should know. Well, what was it? Who, who was Jared Kushner sending this money to? We know it was Russians. For what? In 16 and 17? Hello, that's before and after the election. So that's something to pay attention to. It should be a bigger story. But there's a, it's such a shitstorm all the time that things get lost. But that's a big deal. Big deal. I've always said follow the money. And um, more and more, I, I just don't think this is the end. And the closer that investigators or congressional investigators get to these things, especially finances, the more unhinged Trump becomes. So hold on to your seats, folks. Well, with that, uh, hold on to your seats for my interviews with Ellie Honig first and then Glenn Kushner. But I'm going to bring in Ellie, who's always a hoot to talk to. I just love him. And he's a he's a fellow Jersey person. So we always bond over being Jersey people. So stay tuned. Here comes Ellie Honig. Well, I'm thrilled to have CNN legal analyst Ellie Honig back with me. He's been a guest of the program. He's been on before. Ellie is kicking ass and taking names as, as a legal analyst on CNN. He's got a branded segment now called Cross Exam. He also writes a column weekly where he allows folks to write in and ask questions, and he answers them. And he, you can see him every Sunday at 540 on Anna Cabrera's program uh, doing his Cross Exam uh, segment. And he's also a former federal prosecutor. So Ellie is a great person to talk about all the crazy legal things that are going on right now. So I'm glad to have him back. Ellie, welcome back, my friend. Thank you, Tara. I, it's an honor to be asked back. I love doing this podcast, and I have a lot that I want to vent about. So this is going to be part therapy session as well. Great. We uh, we love the kvetch <laughs> on the Honestly Speaking exactly. Tara podcast. It's a, it's a great therapeutic <laughs> exercise for me, for my guests, and the listeners, I think. 
<laughs> Let's hope. Let's hope. So let me start off with um, the Sunday shows and Senator Mitt Romney, who frustrates me to no end, especially as a Republican, yeah. because you want him to be that person who's going to stand up and call Trump out. And he kind of does it a little bit and then he pulls back. He does it a little bit, then he pulls back. Well, something similar happened on Sunday. And I will not say that Mitt Romney is a profile on courage, unlike Representative Justin Amash, Republican yep. from Michigan, who came out over the weekend and basically tweeted in a tweet storm his reasoning behind why Donald Trump has basically met the threshold for impeachment. And our Jake Tapper on CNN State of the Union asked Mitt Romney about this. And Mitt even though I know he knows better. But Mitt Romney said that, well, he doesn't think it's it's uh, impeachment, impeachable, didn't rise to the level of impeachable offenses. And he said, quote, it, it didn't make the el- didn't make the elements didn't reach the elements of obstruction. Right. Uh, explain to me and the viewers why Mitt Romney is wrong about that. So first of all, it seems like Mitt Romney, so, someone tweeted this in response to me, and I liked it. He, he's the new Jeff Flake, right? And I think you hit it, Tara, right? He, he, always, always posturing like he's going to do something independent. Always always sort of giving signals like he's going to take a stance, but never really does. Um, and I guess someone's got to fill that role. Yeah, I, I laughed when I, when I saw the clip from Romney because he's trying to talk legal, but it's not legal terminology that he's using. He well, says he's not a lawyer. Th- yeah, he goes, there wasn't the full element. Right. First of all, that, that's, that's not a thing. Um, <laughs> I think what he was trying to say, so every, any crime out there has what we call elements. And when, it, when a judge is instructing a jury on any crime, robbery, fraud, you name it, he will say, here are the three elements, here are the four elements. And it's just basically the building blocks that have to be satisfied in order to show that crime. Um, but gosh, Mitt, what elements are missing here? Right. Um, and I think, I, I, right, I mean, and we, and we can go through them. I, I mean, I've been on the on my soapbox, and I'm one of the now almost 1,000 prosecutors who signed a letter saying that if Donald Trump was not the sitting president of the United States, if not for the DOJ policy, uh, he would have been indicted, no questions asked. And I, I've been saying that for a while. I think it's a it's not just a, a, a case for obstruction; it's a knockdown case for obstruction when you look at it all. And one thing I've not heard, certainly not from Mitt Romney the other day, not from Bill Barr at any point, is give me a, a coherent cogent explanation of how this is not obstruction. Mick gave us nothing. Mm-hmm. Barr sort of mumbled his way through a couple of very unconvincing things. Well, he, he felt angered and frustrated. <laughs> uh, okay, yeah. Usually that's why people obstruct. Right, that's not a exactly. defense. <laughs> right? Um, and he also, you know, Barr also sort of mumbled the whole thing about, well, when there's no underlying crime, it's a little harder to find obstruction. Now, look, that's not the law. He didn't say that. He, he didn't misstate the law, because the law you can absolutely have an obstruction charge without an underlying crime. He didn't, Barr didn't quite say that, but but Mueller gave us perfectly legitimate reasons why you can have obstruction without an underlying crime. He said, look, maybe you're trying to hide something else you did bad that's not necessarily a crime. Maybe what you did is in that gray area of could be a crime, maybe not, and I think that qualifies here. Um, th- look, there's examples right and left of people who've been charged with obstruction crimes without an underlying crime. Martha Stewart, Scooter Libby, Bill Clinton was impeached for just an obstruction crime, and, and 
And I noticed just a week or two ago, Barr's own uh, Department of Justice indicted somebody for obstruction crimes without an underlying offense. Um, I think it's so important for people to understand because that is one of the fallacious lines that uh, Trump supporters and his minions are trying to to put out there saying, well, there couldn't be obstruction because there was no underlying crime. And that is BS. Absolute BS. And look, it was about two weeks ago. It was in it was in uh, mid-April, and Bill Barr's DOJ indicted an FBI employee actually for obstruction of justice with no underlying crime. So what do you know? Bill Barr is mm-hmm. capable of doing it, and there's examples everywhere. The the other thing that bugged me about the the Romney interview is this. Look, just be honest with where you're at here, right? right? Like, right. don't hide behind legal gobbledygook that you can't even say right, like the full element. Like, <laughs> I get it, man. Like, I, everyone knows where you're coming from, which is you just don't have the political courage to do this. And, and you know, obviously Mitt Romney's not going to say it that way, but right. I would actually have no problem if Mitt Romney just said, I've read the report. There's some areas for concern for sure, but as a political matter, I'm just not on board with impeachment. Okay, like, I, I might disagree with you. I'm not the politician here, but don't hide behind legal. The elements aren't met. And, and again, I've not heard a single person, including Bill Barr, Rod Rosenstein, uh, Mitt Romney or anybody give, give a remotely convincing argument how this is not obstruction. Because they can't. That's I why. think so. I think they would if they could. Yeah. And, and I think that that frustration that you just expressed is the reason why you have over a thousand now prosecute former federal mm-hmm. prosecutors who did sign on to that letter making that statement. That was a pretty unprecedented thing. I don't think anything like that's ever been done before. Do, do you know of any other time yeah. where you've had that many people from bipartisan, no. by the way, bipartisan, that mm-hmm. many people come together and say, look, this is, yeah. you know, all of this that you're hearing is is just misleading the public. And from our expertise and our hundreds of years of experience put all together in the legal, in, in the legal profession, this is what we think. Has that ever been done before? Not that I know of. It, it's unprecedented, and, and I'm really happy to see what a strong public impression it's made because that's what we were hoping. I, was in on, I wasn't the driver of this. There were other people who were really driving it, but I was in on the very early stages. I was in the initial emails where we were mm-hmm. sort of kicking around the concept and working on the wording and that kind of thing. Um, there are several people who deserve more credit than I, but I was in, in the, on the initial deliberations. And for me, it was an easy call to sign on. And by the way, Tara, know that that number would be many multiples higher if not for the fact that so many pro- – Former prosecutors now work at big law firms, and, right. and because of conflicts, yeah. we're, we're not able to sign it. But even the almost thousand, or maybe more than a thousand, who've now signed on, yeah, it, it's it was so as you said, it crossed any partisan lines. It crossed. You have prosecutors uh, who, who spent thirty plus years in the department. You have prosecutors who've been there for under five years. You have people who were bosses. You have people who are on the line. I, I mean, it crosses every and all line, and I think it just comes down to it, it's such an over overwhelming case. And, and uh, we felt like it was really important that the public understand that. And I've not, by the way, I've not seen any countervailing effort. I, I would be interested to see a letter signed by 100 former prosecutors <laughs> saying this is not obstruction or 10. Well, um, but, well but, wait, hold on. Weren't we supposed to get a counter uh, argument to the Mueller report from Giuliani? Remember oh, yeah. What, it, what happened to yeah. that? Yeah. Whatever happened. I wonder what that? happened to that. What was he calling it? Was the rebuttal. The, the rebuttal. rebuttal. <laughs> yeah. He even described it. Remember at one point he said it's 82 pages already yeah, I, you know like yeah what yeah, what happened at bullshitters, that? Bullshitters, man. I just can't with these people. They are so full of shit. Um, yeah. Well, since you were involved in the um, in the 
early stages of that letter, what was the final yeah. straw? Like there had to be something where everyone was like, okay, that's it. We have to do right. this. Was there I think it was thing? Well, the report itself obviously was the, the beginning straw. I think when you read the report, you yeah. just like I was. I just said, "Oh my goodness!" I, I mean, know. this is worse than I thought. I know. Um, and I think, look, I think Bill Barr's misrepresentation of it. I think, first of all, Barr picking it off for himself and saying, "I've determined there's no obstruction," mm-hmm. and then basically completely failing to 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 support that. Like I said, he had a chance. He testified twice now in Congress, um, once in the budget committees and and once in front of the. Uh, in front of the Senate uh, judiciary, um, and he he, offered, he had nothing. He had nothing. Right. Um, and, and I think a combination of that, the sort of the misrepresentations that are out there, up to and including the president himself, who was declaring no obstruction. Although I did chuckle a week or two ago when he when he modified that to essentially, essentially. no obstruction. Right. Oh, okay. Oh. <laughs> essentially, didn't obstruct justice. <laughs> um, and and other others around the president. And again, look, there are so many things in. in this whole investigation that I think there's a genuine, legitimate legal dispute or factual dispute where there are points to be made one side or the other, and I might favor one side or the other depending on whatever the particular dispute is. And and by the way, my position does not always come down on party lines. There are things I agree with Barr on. There are things I disagree with uh, some of the Democratic members of Congress on. But this is is not one of them. Mm -hmm. Did the president commit chargeable obstruction of justice to me is a very one-sided debate on substance. Absolutely. Well, that's a good transition into talking about Bill Barr. This attorney yeah. general has really, really been a uh, a white hot political controversial figure at this point, which I think is something that a lot of people didn't expect him to be. That's why they approved him in the Senate. Mm-hmm. They confirmed him and said, all right, well, he's been attorney general before. Maybe he'll be an adult in the room here. They wanted to give him a chance. You, the last time you were on the podcast, it was right before... We knew what the full Mueller report said, yep. and we weren't quite sure what, how Bill Barr was going to handle himself here. Well, mm-hmm. since then, two months ago, it, it, he has really revealed himself as a fixer, the new Roy Cohn for Donald Trump, um, and you had some thoughts about that. You wrote a column that's called Will, William Barr's Terrible Judgment, and in that, you call him a political hack first, a serious law enforcement officer second. Talk about yeah. that. So, yeah, I've actually written sort of a series. My weekly column has, uh, if you charted out my view of Barr, it would start off at about, you know, a five out of ten, like you said. Let's see. He's right. got good credentials. Down to, like, every week I'm, I'm just railing against the guy. Um, I think he's been a disgrace. I think he's completely shattered his own credibility. Uh, and I think he's seri- I think he has zero independence. I think he's a political hack. I do. Um, a couple a couple bases for that. First of all, the spin campaign. And this, this kicked off right after I was on with you last time, Tara. Mm-hmm. I mean, this guy had launched a almost month-long campaign. Let's remember, he had this report for three and a half weeks, um, during which it was really a fairly coordinated, misleading campaign. It started with the four-page letter, which don't even – who cares what I say? Robert Mueller said that the letter misstated the substance, the, the context, nature, and substance of Mueller's finding. It's like, we okay, what now. else is there? That's right. Yeah, other we than context, nature, or substance. Right. Yeah, <laughs> right. And we know that now. But, but so Bob puts out his four-page letter, which was enormously consequential, right? It, it set the initial tone of like, this is over, nothing to see here. Um, so you had that. Then you had, 
his testimony in the budget hearing where he was sort of wishy-washy. And then you had really inexcusably, he, he, he decides to hold this press conference. And I was on when it, right when that was announced. And I said, good, good for him. I give him credit for that. It's, it's, a, it's a step in favor of transparency. I was on Jake Tapper's show. And then, and then an hour later or so, it comes out. before the, the- well, Right. It comes out, oh, he's going to have the press conference. The, the report's going to be locked in a room behind him. No one's going to have seen it until right. after. I said, oh, well, what's the point? And then he gets out there and, and sort of dissembles some more at that press conference and, and misstates a, a lot of important things, including the fact that really what, – what, one thing he really misstated is that um, he made it sound like Mueller just couldn't decide obstruction because the evidence was too close. And no, the DOJ policy really didn't have anything to do with it. Then you get the report, and the DOJ policy is the driving force exactly. behind why Mueller didn't decide. That's so right. That, that's, that I thought was shameless by, by Barr and, and really transparent, especially in retrospect. I thought his testimony in the Senate was disgraceful. Yes. I thought he made, an, made a fool of himself. When he was asked questions <laughs> wait, by the wait, Democratic wait. senators, you, you, he couldn't gonna hear – you were going to say yeah. you thought he made an ass of himself, didn't you? <laughs> I was. I, I guess I can swear on this. I heard you swear, but I, I, I'll keep it like PG-13. <laughs> I thought he made a fool of himself. Um, but, I mean, when, when Kamala Harris was examining Senator Harris, and, and he was like, I, I can't hear what? Can you right. repeat that? Right. I don't, and, I'm, and, I'm struggling with the definition of suggest. Yeah. Well, that was what? ridiculous. He couldn't understand suggest. Um, I want her to say, you don't know what suggest means? I know. Um, um, you're the attorney and then, general of the United States for the second time right. around, and you're just going to sit here and insult our intelligence by questioning what definition of suggest is. It was like the, it was reminiscent of Bill Clinton with the what's the definition it, of is is. Exactly. But at least Bill Clinton, like, acknowledged that he was being sneaky yeah. about it. Yeah. Bill Barr was just playing dumb. Right. Uh, and, then, and then Senator Booker, my senator from here in New Jersey, uh, asked him about the thing with where Manafort gave the data to Kalim, the polling data to Kalimnik, and yeah. he's like, who? Which, which data? Who? Yeah. So, okay, did you not read the reporter are you playing dumb right um and, and then to top it all off and this has been his most recent development he started doing this at the press conference where, where he said the term no collusion six right. times and then he said spying and now he even in his fox news interview the other night endorsed the idea of a witch hunt he mm-hmm. said well if, if someone's wrongly accused i think they can think it's a witch hunt i mean that the use of those terms, none of those terms are terms that any real prosecutor would ever use in any official setting. They are political terms. They are politically loaded terms. He darn well knows that, and he is repeating them left and right, which to me exposes him. He's a political operative. He might as well be uh, Stephen Miller or or, or one of these guys rather than the chief prosecutor of the United States. Yeah, that is – I think it's important for people to understand that even though the attorney general is technically a political appointee of the president – his job, though, is not to be the president's personal attorney. That right. is not his role as the attorney general of the United States. It's to yep. uphold the Constitution and be the chief law enforcement officer of the laws of the of the land. And yep. Bill Barr behaving like this, some people would argue, oh, well, uh, uh, Eric Holder protected the president and other attorneys mm-hmm. generals, uh, attorneys general have protected the president. And guess what? The last time someone did that openly, they went to prison, like under Nixon. Remember that? Right. It right, didn't work right. out too well because that's not your role. It's a violation of your constitutional oath. And this freaking Bill Barr going out there, I'm glad you brought up that Fox News interview because yeah. I watched that and I was like screaming at the television. He's basically <laughs> taking over Rudy Giuliani's 
role. You repeating yeah. and parroting that loaded language from the president of the United States, who is irresponsibly putting things out there, planting the seeds of treason and coups and, you know, a, a deep state and spying and a witch hunt. And, and mm-hmm. the attorney general is repeating these things and then ra- trying to rationalize it. That is so irresponsible. I, I just can't totally with that. I couldn't believe I- it. It's hard to even remember that this guy is the head of the Department of right. Justice. He's the head federal prosecutor. I mean, I mean, I worked under AGs from from Alberto Gonzalez to John Ashcroft, uh, reverse order, uh, Michael Mukasey, Eric Holder, Loretta Lynch, um, and all of them were criticized at various times for their policies or for things they had done or said, and and fairly. often fairly. But 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 to have somebody who has completely destroyed their own credibility and who was out there just politically hawking for the president is is brand new. And by the way, Bill Barr has taken sort of what I think in professional wrestling they would call a heel turn um, <laughs> because he, he faked this out here because when he during his confirmation hearing, he was asked, do you, do you believe this is a witch hunt? And he said pretty clearly, no, I don't think Bob Mueller would be involved in a witch hunt. He did exactly what a real AG should do, which, right. is, which is basically, that's silly talk. I don't get into that, though. Right. Silly phrases. And by the way, when the the, F, the current FBI director Chris Ray was asked was about this that. recently, mm-hmm. yep, he, he said no, no, no. He he brushed that aside as he should have. He said no, right. I'm not going to go down that and, road. And, and, and guess who's on the uh, guess who's on the president's crap list now? Right, <laughs> right? Chris Ray, because right. because he's not parroting the points. So um, it, it, it's it's really a, a low point for 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 the position of attorney general that we're at right now. I can only imagine what the morale is like over at the DOJ for the career. The career folks there. I mean, between the attacks on the FBI and our intelligence uh, agencies, now yeah. the, you know this mockery going on with the Attorney General. I, I, I just can't imagine that there hasn't been a mass exodus of people saying, "Fuck this, we're done." Well, let me say this. I, I guess I think of that two ways. Number one, I, I know a lot of people still at DOJ, and here's the, one of the great things about DOJ in the Southern District of New York is it, it almost it mostly doesn't matter. You, you focus on your work. Right. As, as Preparara used to tell us, just keep your head down, do your job. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to a large extent, I think what happened to a large extent to the to line people, what's happening in D.C. is million miles away and you just you just do your work. On the other hand, it's got to be dispiriting. It's really got to be mm-hmm. dispiriting to, to see this happening. And by the way, another thing that makes me nuts as, as a guy who grew up in the, in the trenches uh, of DOJ is as it currently stands, your top three people at DOJ have never tried a criminal case. You got Bill Barr, who, yes, he was, of course, attorney general in the 90s, but he, but he never was on the trenches, never in the courtroom. Uh, you have the, the new deputy, Rosen, who's never done any prosecution of anything, and you have the new head of the criminal division, Benchkowski, who's never tried a case or never handled a criminal pro- – I, mean, I mean, he may have tried a civil case – who's never prosecuted a criminal case either. Are you serious? That's so, really yes. I didn't know that. So I think people see that and kind of roll their eyes. I mean, you know, the, all the people I served under were, were accomplished former prosecutors oh, or had real sakes. backgrounds you know, on both parties or were judges or um, had real courtroom experience. In, uh, including, so, which people should understand, including James Comey. A lot of folks yeah. don't remember him before he was FBI director, but James, James Comey was the Southern District of New York uh, uh, U.S. attorney, right? 
Yeah, so well, well, I just missed James Comey. I right. actually was hired. I actually was hired just a couple months after he left. But but he was. Uh, look, he, he's people think of him differently, and I never know what to make of him. There's times he says things that I think are really wise, and and I want to hear his views. And there's times where I'm just like well, he's all over the map yeah, and, and be very, making know, excuses for himself. And <laughs> yeah, walking in the woods, but thinking about thinking deep thoughts. Yeah. You know, deep. Th- like um, but Saturday Night Live, right? Deep. Thoughts. Yeah, exactly. Deep thoughts with James Comey. It was right. It wasn't the guy's name, Jack Handy. It almost yes. fits. Um, so, but, but a funny, a quick, uh, Comey story was, so there was a, there was kind of a tradition at the Southern district and other district, other districts that the U S attorney one time in his tenure would come down from his high and mighty perch and try a case, right? Just like a regular case, um, just to show that he was still with it and mm-hmm. still could handle himself. So James Comey did that and he came down this right before I started and he tried a, a trigger lock case, which is what we call the, the, the federal, uh, firearms cases where if, if a person's been convicted of a felony and they're found in possession of a firearm, uh, then that's a federal crime. So James Comey came down from his perch as U.S. attorney, and he tried a trigger lock case and lost. He got oh, my court. God. So, yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> yep, even though yep. it happens to the best of them, right? Can yeah, I know pre used to think about it, but I, I think I was one of many people being like, don't, why would you? You don't need to. What do you need to prove? Just right. You don't want stay to be, your, stay on the eighth floor. You're right. fine. Yeah. You don't want to be comied. Yeah. You don't want to get, you don't yeah. want to be comied. Right? Exactly. <laughs> don't get comied. Yeah. Well, I, I guess he did get comied because Preet Bharara, your former yeah. boss, got fired also because he refused he did get to fired. pledge. Well, because he refused to pledge fealty to uh, President Trump after he said right. that he would keep him on board. Right. Well, but let me also, I mean, I think Preet's such a good example here of how, Preet was obviously not the attorney general, but he was a top law enforcement right. official. This is how you should deal with, with with a president who's trying to intervene in what you do. One of the big, immediately before Preet was fired, he got a call or two calls, I forget the sequence, Preet's laid this out publicly, in his office from the president of the United States. And you know what he did? He didn't take the call. And he called back, he called back, I think, DOJ counsel and said, I don't know, what, what shall I do here? Because the president's called me, but it, but it strikes me as being inappropriate for a top prosecutor to have a converse, private conversation with the president, which is how a prosecutor should handle that, exactly. that kind of situation, uh, in contrast to Bill Barr. And, and ultimately, Preet lost his job over it. And he did. It's uh, unfortunate because he was he was a great U.S. attorney over there. But he's yep. uh, written a book now, and he's he's uh, he's another CNN. CNN got him too. Yep. Another you know, legal talent and a great yep. perspective because of what he's been involved in and what and what he had to deal with. He's a great example and brings a lot of perspective to to the conversations when when he's on. Absolutely. Let me ask you about this, which is something along the lines of what Bill Barr has been doing and why he's just really there to be a protector of the president. He is now this whole idea of, of going after the investigators, investigate the investigators. Right. And this idea that no one seems to understand why the Russian investigation started. And that's something that we should really look into because that's really where the outrage should be is nonsense, but okay. I'm all for oversight. If we want to make sure, Mm -hmm. do a review, make sure all the T's were crossed and I's were dotted. Fine. But there were already two investigations going on. You had the inspector general who is still investigating. And then you also had this um, prosecutor out in Utah that was conducting an investigation that I actually didn't know about. What is the prosecutor in Utah doing? I have no idea. It's a great question. I don't know how Utah figures into any of this. I was like, wait, what? 
Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know why, how, or why this guy. Yeah, look, I, I, I share that concern. I have real problems with this on a couple of levels. First of all, yeah, you're throwing a third right. prosecutor into this case. Now, um, a prosecutor now look, from Connecticut. Yeah, Dunham, I think, is his name. Yeah. He seems to have really strong uh, credentials, and he seems to be genuinely nonpartisan. So I think it was a good pick, but I think the idea of let me throw another prosecutor in here is really suspect. It's really the opposite of what you would do. Normally in law enforcement, you try to de-conflict, meaning sometimes you find out, oh, we're looking at this case, so is this other district. Let's sit down with them. Let's work it out. There should only be one of us on it. It doesn't make sense to have two different offices. So he's doing the opposite here. The other thing is – the. the the funny thing to me is there's this false sort of premise that the whole Russia investigation ended up being a washout. I mean, okay, right. did the president get charged? No, he couldn't have been charged anyway because of DOJ policy. But this investigation was extraordinarily valuable, important, and fruitful. I mean, it, it revealed that there was a massive criminal Russian hacking effort. It revealed all manner of crimes by important high-ranking people from Manafort to Cohen to Flynn to Gates. Etc. Um, and it revealed ultimately that the Trump campaign, to, to, to quote the Mueller report, expected to benefit electorally That's from correct. the massive Russian hacking. Um, so this was a an enormously successful investigation that that gave us very important insight and, and indictments. So. Why are we why are we questioning the way it was opened? Um, and the third thing that I have a problem with is, is the message. The message it sends to the rank and file members of the FBI and other federal agencies and the U.S. attorneys offices, which is if you investigate the wrong person, obviously the president, but maybe even others who are just the wrong person, the tables could get turned on you and you right. could find yourself uh, on the wrong end of the investigation. So, look, I do agree with the very broad proposition that if something wrong was done internally it needs to be investigated and, and fully known but the here best, i think it's quite obvious what's going on right, i think they're all playing for political points and people need to also understand that every single cabinet agency has an inspector general and basically the inspector general is an independent internal affairs officer so if there yep. is something going on that isn't right that or misconduct or anything like that the inspector general comes in and investigates and issues a report that's yep. what happened here with the DOJ. That's how we found out about Lisa Page and uh, Peter yep. Strzok and why how Andrew McCabe ended up getting fired. We fe- yep. That yielded results as well because this process was working under the normal process of how these things work. It was working. And Har- Horowitz, who's the inspector general for the DOJ, is not done. He's still investigating. Yeah. So if there was any misconduct with the FISA warrants and all this nonsense that they, that they scream about every night on Fox News, the inspector general is going to freaking find it. Why is it why is it not good enough? It's because there's a political motivation to investigate the investigators, which is what, you know, two bit dictators do. Right. And, and look, Horowitz has, has a ton of credibility. He, he is not yes. afraid to he pulls no punches. I mean, that's right. He, 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 he's the one who, who found, and I, I believe correctly, that Andrew McCabe had been dishonest in the investigation and, right. and I believe, made a criminal referral. That's correct. So, 
he has the ability to make a criminal referral. And um, he criticized he, Comey. He also criticized yeah. Comey in his handling of the Hillary Clinton email controversy and giving that that press conference and kind of the way he did yep. it was outside of normal procedure. So Horowitz has been fair here. Yeah, apparently yeah. fairness is is a, is a negative with this. Yeah, <laughs> uh, they always want to they always want to stack the deck. I think I think Donald Trump and it, it seems Bill Barr understand that the most important thing is always who you have doing the job, right? right, right. <laughs> it it seems to be more important to them right. than the, what. Whatever the facts are, and also if they look the part, you know, so you had a central casting with right. this guy, you know, like come on, what are we casting? Oh, totally. Show? It's ridiculous. <laughs> Let me ask you. Quickly, it is funny to watch. It is. Yeah. It's funny when it's not so consequential, though. You know what I mean? Like sometimes right. you, say you have to laugh to stop yourself from crying because this is really, right. really frightening. What's actually yeah. happening? It's crazy. Let me, let me ask you about Flynn. Uh, before we talk about Congress and the subpoenas. So it was recently found out that Michael Flynn was communicating with a member of Congress about during his while he was cooperating because he's been under a cooperation agreement. Remember, he pled guilty to a federal crime to lying to investigators. But he was communicating with a member of Congress, encouraging them to continue criticizing Mueller. This was during the same time that he was allegedly cooperating in a cooperation agreement with Mueller yeah. and his prosecutors. Now, there was a t- there was a point where he has not, he's not been sentenced yet. And there was a point when the judge in his case really went after him, almost accused him of treason. Right. And, and, and everyone was a little, uh, you know, taken aback by that, how strong the language was from the judge. He had to walk it back a little bit. But that was before we knew publicly what else was going on there clearly the judge and the prosecutors knew what was happening but the public hadn't known yet when you heard about this these developments with flynn and how he's been really almost arrogantly um still defiant what did you think about that and how unusual is that for a federal uh cooperating witness to engage in activity like flynn was still engaging in yeah, uh, my first thought is, oh, the prosecutors are not going to like this, right? right? Um, I mean, the funny thing is, it's probably not technically forbidden in his cooperation agreement because, like, who would ever even think to do this, right? Like, the, the cooperation agreement doesn't say uh, cooperators shall not be out there secretly encouraging other people to bash the prosecutor. Right. It's right. like, you know, the prosecution agreement also doesn't say, like, spit in the prosecutor's face and throw his lunch on the floor, uh, you know, but, but you can't do that, but, like, it doesn't say that. Um, so, yeah, that's this is not going to help him at all at sentencing. Um, and it, it, it's pretty rare to see this happen after a cooperation agreement gets signed. What, what does happen is, is in the early stages before you sign a cooperation agreement, you will catch people in lies. You will catch people. You will get frustrated in people and just say, all right, I'm done. You're not ready to come, to come clean here. But after a cooperation agreement is signed and after you've given cooperation to learn that somebody was secretly egging on the other side to attack you, that's that's really bad. Uh, and Flynn is Flynn is pushed his luck here in, in a couple really of respects. Has. Yeah, I mean, he tried to put, he tried to, to latch onto this theory that he was targeted and he was set up, and 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 Trump started to get behind that until the judge really went the total opposite direction here. Mm-hmm. And remember, the judge basically adjourned that sentencing mid proceeding, and he basically said, "Hey, listen, I know you think you're going to get no prison time. I know the government has recommended no prison time, but I'm not with that. So mm-hmm. you may want to you may want to call it here and come back in a few months. So he could he could really land. It's a there's a possibility." He lands himself behind bars if he loses the prosecutor. If the prosecutor goes in in the next sentence and says, Judge, we've since learned about more things that he was doing that were somewhere between sneaky and just outright violated the, the agreement, uh, and we're no longer on board with, with this no jail time recommendation.
recommendation or we no longer have any recommendation. There's ways to signal to the judge, you know, hey, we're not with this guy anymore. Um, So, yeah, he could end up costing himself. Yeah, I almost feel like in the beginning, I'm like, well, maybe he was just naive or maybe he just let his ego get the best of him. He served our country. He was a lieutenant general. You know, maybe it wasn't as nefarious as it could. At this point now, I don't know. You know, I yeah. don't know. I can't use that he was not used to being in politics and he was just kind of a, you know, frontline tough guy, army general that that got caught up in this thing. I'm not so sure anymore. And I'm also not so sure that he doesn't deserve to spend some time in jail because this is yeah. bullshit the way he's behaved. Yeah. And I think it's disgraceful to his his military service. And and and, um, and I just don't think that it should go unpunished. But if he does get jail time, I don't think he'll yep. spend one day in jail because Trump nah. will either pardon or commute his sentence 100 percent. I think that's right. And listen, Michael Flynn's no dummy. I know that he and some of his people have tried to put out there like, right. oh, what, what does he know? I mean, but even just think back to his initial crime, right? He's approached by the FBI who wants to know about his contacts with, with the Russian ambassador. And and he lies about it because he was really talking to, to him about sanctions right? Um, and lifting sanctions. I mean, that's outrageous. That's what I think inflamed that judge to, to invoke the word treason, although as mm-hmm. the judge later acknowledged, that's, right. that's a bit much. But um, this is this is really serious stuff. This isn't just some some wannabe like George Papadopoulos who, right. who corks Page. off and lies to the FBI. Yeah, Carter Page, one of these people who orbit Trump. I mean, this guy is an accomplished military professional. And he was head of the he, DIA, for God's sake. Yeah, I mean, of, of all people. Intelligence agency. Right, of all people who should understand the importance of this stuff. So uh, I'm not so sure he's not out of the woods. And it is going to be really interesting to see how does the pardon power get used. And, and I think Flynn is is a top candidate. I think eventually we may see it for Manafort. Um, I, I keep wondering if the president might actually pardon Roger Stone because, listen, mm-hmm. let's not forget, that trial is happening in November. It's not that far off. That trial is going to be ugly oh, yes. because – we're going to learn that – remember, in that Roger Stone indictment, it says a couple times that senior Trump campaign officials, all right, emphasis on the senior and, and emphasis on the plural, officials, uh, and paraphrasing, told Stone to get in touch with WikiLeaks, told Stone to, to get information from WikiLeaks. Like, who are these people? We're going right. to learn about this. And let's not forget um, that in the Mueller yeah. report, it talks about how Trump took a phone call in August of mm-hmm. 2016. Uh, Rick Gates apparently tested testified to this, that Trump took a phone call while they were in a car on their way to the airport. And afterward, he made a comment about he's, you know, expecting information to come from WikiLeaks. Yep. yep. We don't and know also, who that phone call was from because it was redacted. But obviously, yep. there's a lot of speculation that it was probably Roger Stone. Yeah. So it, I, I've sort of wondered, boy, there, there is a way for the president to make this whole trial go away. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it would be it would be very unpopular, but pardons are almost always care. unpopular. And did, yeah. I, right. Does he really care? care? Yeah, that's right. And yeah. I actually I'll be talking to Glenn Kirchner um, yep. after you to talk about the, the potential military pardons that yeah. Trump is contemplating because uh, Kirchner was a JAG officer for years. And yeah, I saw his very, tweet yeah, on that. Yeah, he's super fired up about it. And a lot of my other military uh, friends are like, you can't do this. So that's another example of where Trump doesn't really give a shit what people think. He doesn't care about the political consequences. He has plenary power given to him by the Constitution to pardon whoever the hell he wants. And, you know, here's another example of that potentially. And it's just um, it's just sad. 
the funny thing about pardons to me with, with Trump is they, that may be the one power that actually does kind of work the way Trump would want it to work, right. which is I just get to point my finger and say, you're part, you know, you go away, you go away, you right. go away. Like everything else is way more complicated than he understands yeah, or cares to acknowledge. Pardons, right? They're pretty. But par- yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting. I take I take as you mentioned before, I take viewer and reader questions from CNN. They come mm-hmm. in through this inbox and we get you know hundreds each week. But man, do people hate pardons? <laughs> I mean, people, the, the two things that are that viewers hate most or are most like, how could this be? Are pardons and the DOJ policy against indicting a sitting president. They just. Right. But but they have something in common, which is they they sort of allow people to evade legal responsibility for what they've done. And human beings – forget about what side of the aisle you're on or how you vote. Human beings do not like that. I understand it. But pardons are part of our – they're they're in the Constitution specifically. Now, there there are questions about can a president pardon himself, and and, um, I think that's an open question. And then there was the question about whether Trump dangling pardons in uh, in front of people for their cooperation is considered an obstruction of justice um yeah. Well, Mueller, Mueller certainly seems to yes. think so. And I, I think absolutely. I mean, if, if the if the purpose of putting a pardon out there is you want to prevent someone from cooperating, that, how is that any different than offering them money not Correct. to cooperate? I would argue a pardon is much more valuable than than your, your standard money, you know, money, sack of money. Sure. Uh, freedom, so, freedom and, a, yeah. and, a, and a complete slate, you know, clean slate of, of, yeah. being, of never being held to account for your misdeeds. Yeah, I think that that's pretty priceless for some folks. Well, I, I've used this example sort of hypothetically, but I wonder if it, if it may at some point become non-hypothetical. Wait, to the people who argue that the president can use his, his executive powers for any purpose he sees fit, no matter what, and there's no crime ever, this is sort of the Barr theory and the, the Brett Kavanaugh uh, uh, theory, um, that um, you know that the president can just pardon anyone he wants for any reason, and it can never be criminal, it can never be obstruction. I say, I say, I've said before, what if the president tweeted out, hey, par- everyone, pardons available, $25,000 each, make checks payable Donald J. Trump, like that would have to be a crime, wouldn't right, it? Right. And, um, but uh, gosh, I wonder. It would actually be interesting to see uh, how much would people pay. Like, I wonder what what a pardon would go for. I guess it right. depends who it is. But right. like Bernie Madoff would probably be able to pay a lot. Right. That's right. Um, I think you might be selling yourself short with only twenty five thousand. You know, Trump. Could pay oh yeah, yeah, yeah. A million, depending on who it was for. Um, yeah. Hey, you never know. We'll see what happens in the last days of the presidency. That's when pardons fly. No, with this freaking yep. guy, it's so true. So speaking yep. of that, and as we uh, as we wrap this up, I want to talk. Yeah. a little bit about the uh, what's going on with this fight between Congress and the White House over subpoenas. Mm. I know a lot of people are like, well, hold on. In a criminal setting, when the court issues a subpoena, you can go to jail or be yep. fined if you ignore that. That's why we have subpoenas, because they're supposed to be enforceable. Because if we didn't have a way to enforce or compel people to testify or participate, the criminal justice system will fall apart. So when yep. it comes to Congress, they have right. subpoena power. But it seems like this this has just been kind of an exercise in futility lately, where they're making threats, but they're not doing anything. What can Congress do? What kind of what yeah. power do they have to enforce these subpoenas that the White House is scoffing at and saying, screw you, we're not going to we're not going to abide by them. What can yeah. Congress do to compel them to do it? 
So a couple of things. First of all, Jerry Nadler is just getting his butt kicked right now. He, yes. he is really like just absolutely failing to, to do his job as the head of the Judiciary Committee. And I don't know if it's because he doesn't really want to. He does seem to be a little trigger shy about moving too far down the road of impeachment or he doesn't know what he's doing. But, man, is he getting steamrolled. I mean, every subpoena he's, he's serving, the executive branch is, is either laughing at, ripping up and throwing in the garbage or ignoring. He's gotten nothing thus far. So what, what – but here's what Congress can do, and I break it down into, uh, into really four different things. First of all, there's contempt, and we saw the vote on contempt last week on Barr. But contempt has, has actually become a literal joke at this point, contempt of Congress, um, because Bill Barr's out there cracking jokes at public right. forums about, right. oh, I got held in contempt, and it's a big laugh line. So contempt oh, he, has kind of lost all its powers. Well, just yeah, before you say that, the other part yeah. was when he was in the Capitol, he saw Nancy Pelosi and yeah. joked about, did you bring their handcuffs? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, so, Tom, uh, what an arrogant I, SOB. <laughs> right. And I think at some point in like the 1800s or something, this was seen as a formidable power. You would have the sergeant at arms right. go make an arrest. But, but for, oh, for whatever reason. 1934. Right, right. They put someone in that little ceremonial prison or yes, whatever it is. Yes. But, but I think for reasons of just history and evolution of, of our, our, our democracy, that, that really just – that power has all but disappeared. So right. contempt used to, used to hold some force. Then there's as – you, as you referenced, Sarah, number two is uh, Congress can refer a contempt case to DOJ. Big problem there is who's in charge of DOJ right. is Bill Barr. But, but it is important that people understand criminal contempt is a real thing. I've actually held people in jail on criminal contempt for, for refusing to abide by subpoenas. Isn't um, Chelsea Manning going through that right now? I think that's what's happening there. Yeah, yeah. I believe. Um, and it, it happens. You, you're really reluctant to do it as a prosecutor because it feels really heavy-handed. But occasionally you have to make sure people understand the message of subpoenas are not optional. If our system needs your testimony or your evidence, you must give it to us. Um, so, so that's number two. Number three is is the courts, right? And and. Look, Congress has to be much more aggressive about getting these disputes into courts. No more this slow playing and, well, we're giving them a new deadline and we'll hear back from them by then and then we'll set a new, another deadline. This, there's four or five things out there right now where Congress has been outright defied. They just got the first one into court. This was the dispute over, over the subpoena to Mazars, the, uh, the accounting firm for the Trump, which was just heard last week by the judge in D.C. But nothing else has reached the court yet. If, if I'm in Nadler's shoes, I, I take all these subpoenas for, for uh, well, tax returns comes from from a different committee, but for, for the tax returns, for Barr to get his himself back in front of the Congress. Remember, Barr walked out on the House. He never right. gave that House testimony. Because, he the, was a, because, in my opinion, he was afraid of being questioned of by staff attorneys because he knew, he knows yeah. that any skilled attorney would never have let him get away with the bullshit, obfuscating right. answers he gave the last time. And he was like, oh, well, you know, I don't yep. have the same cover and protection as I did in the, yep. in the House side as I did in the Senate because Lindsey Graham was going to rescue him if he got in trouble trouble, which he did many times. So exactly. Knew that. So there's all those. There's the dispute over McGahn's testimony and executive privilege. I would just take them all. I would say, hey, you have until tomorrow. And if, if you don't comply and then bring them all into the courts all at once. And by the way, I would also ask a for expedited ruling, which the judge uh, did in Washington, D.C. To his credit, he said, I'm speeding this up. The Trump, the Trump attorneys, the White House attorneys objected. He said, no, 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 this is too important. I'm not going to let you run out the clock here. Um, and I think other judges need need to follow that example. So they can um, do that. Is there precedent for that? Yeah. I think with Nixon, yes. right? there is precedent well, for, for speeding it up.
up – there's two ways to speed it up. One, a judge like Judge Mehta in D.C., a judge can just do whatever he wants. A judge can say, I'm moving this to the front of my docket. Like judges have lots of cases, but they get to prioritize. So a judge can absolutely just say, I'm speeding this up, and I'm giving you a very short deadline. There's really not much that can be done. The other thing is there is a way to go direct to the Supreme Court, which is very rare. It was done in Nixon. It's usually done in wartime sort of emergency scenarios. But that's another avenue that could be explored. So um, the other thing I, I would do if I was in, in the shoes of Congress, I would ask for what's called a special master, meaning one specific judge who's designated to handle all this stuff. Um, and look, Judge Mehta seems to be a good pick, but you don't get to pick who. The, the court gets to pick who. Right. Um, but whoever it is, let's get one judge who will become an expert on this stuff, who will make sure that the rulings are internally consistent with one another, and who will move these things. So that's the third uh, option. The fourth option, which actually was, was suggested by, to me by a, a viewer, and we talked about it last night, it, this is sort of the nuclear option, but the power of the purse, right? The House has the power to tax and spend, to, to raise revenue through taxing, and, and then to allocate money that, that comes in. And ultimately, Congress, if Congress really wanted to play hardball, could say, okay, here's the deal. Either you, you would buy by our subpoenas or we're cutting off your funding, DOJ or White House or whatever part of the executive branch. Now, there's obviously political risk there. It'll be seen as sort of a political temper tantrum and it'll be seen as like causing a, a mini shutdown. But hey, it's it, look, it's a powerful card that Speaker Pelosi is holding and she people are starting to reference it. Adam Schiff raised it the other day as a possibility and we'll see. We'll see how much political will there is in Congress. I think I think there's concern that Congress, including the Speaker and, and Nather, really don't want to impeach and really don't want to rally support for impeachment because the more people – it seems to me that the more people see and learn about the Mueller report, the stronger that the, the cry for subpoena uh, gets. And, and Representative Amash uh, I think is a perfect uh, example of that over the weekend. Well, I would think that at this point it is their duty to at least – do impeachment inquiries, which are just basically mini hearings about aspects yep. of the Mueller report and things that Trump has done that are clearly impeachable and, and Republicans would have to be forced to explain how they're not. Because they're, yep. right now they're just getting away with putting out a lot of propaganda nonsense and, and untruths about what's really happening and allowed to be hypocrites on this issue because they went nuclear during the Clinton impeachment hearings. I remember I was there. I was in <laughs> politics then at the time, and I can remember those speeches, and I can remember how Republicans were going on and on about the importance of you know, holding public officials accountable for abuse of power and all these things. And I'm sorry, but what Bill Clinton did was way less than what this president has yeah. done. I mean, it was a valuable um, argument to have about abuse of power. You can't lie and all those things. Fine. But if you're going to go that way, but now you're, you pull a 180 and what Trump has done, the myriad of things Trump has done are not impeachable. This is okay now. Holy cow. Like I just, yeah. uh, it, it's, I, and I still think that in, I know that the political appetite is really not there for Democrats because they say, look, there's an election in a year and a half. Let's just vote him out. But I just think it's, it's irresponsible as, as co for Congress, for the, for the legislative branch, not to do their duty. I think Justin Amash made a good point about that. Yeah. No, I think I think you said the exact right word, which is which is duty. And and at what point does the does the polling and the political calculations and the looking back twenty years that well Clinton got a little bit of a bounce after he was impeached and and uh, at what point does that just give way to like we have a job to do here? The right. Constitution mandates it. That's right. Uh, and I think that'll be the make or break. Now, when it comes to when it comes to predicting what politicians will do, you, you have a background in politics. I don't, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I I don't know how much 
faith I have in politicians to do something that might be electorally unpopular, um, but the right thing to do. But let me also say this. I'm not so sure I believe that impeachment is this is this sort of pulling an electoral nightmare. Um, I, I mean, uh, there's a lot of interest in this, and I think a lot of people uh, see the importance of, of doing the right thing here. And, okay, Bill Clinton got a, got a brief sort of pull bump 20 years ago, but – I think there. I think that may have had something to do with the strength or weakness of the case underlying the Correct. impeachment, right? The fact that it was seen as a, an incredibly uh, uh, sort of an overly drastic remedy, um, and I don't think you'd have that here. I actually, uh, I have actually uh, have posed that question to Joe Lockhart, who is Clinton's press secretary. Right. Do you see this as similar or, or dissimilar? And he's an interesting guy to talk to about that kind of thing. So, so um, what what's next? What should people be paying oh. attention to as we, you know, as we wrap this up and in the next yeah. couple of weeks we see all of these legal battles that are that are ramping up so what are like three important legal battles that people should be paying attention to that are that are the most consequential in the near future well to me to me the really the, the big picture issue is the more people know about and learn about the Mueller report, the more I think people understand the imperative for action to be taken here. It's like what? It's like a horror movie. I think is it The Ring or something where like anytime someone looks at a certain videotape, then, yes. then like they get killed. Well, it's an imperfect analogy, but <laughs> anytime someone looks at the Mueller report, like they're forever changed, right? right? right. And they go, oh my gosh, like this, right? This has to, someone has to do something. I mean, that's what happened to Representative Amash, right? Mm-hmm. And I think – here's the, the fact of the matter. Almost nobody's really looked at this thing, right? CNN did a poll a couple of weeks ago. Three percent of the American public said they right. had read the whole thing. Seventy-five percent right. said they read none of it. Uh, Amash said I, I feel like very few – or very, many members of Congress have not read it. Some of the members of Congress almost boasted about not having read it, right? Mm-hmm. Lindsey Graham kind of swaggers in and says, I haven't even read it. I don't need to, you know, um, that kind of thing. So – but the more people understand what's in this thing, I think the more they're going to flip out. And and so to that end, I see a couple of big battles. Number one is McGahn, right? We have the legal battle over McGahn. If he takes the stand, it's one thing to read the few pages in, in the Mueller report, which are really damning about how the president tried to get McGahn to get Rosenstein to fire Mueller and then tried to get McGahn to lie about it. That's right. I mean, it's one thing to read it on the page. It's another thing to see the guy. By the way, a longtime loyal Republican who, oh, yeah. who shepherded shepherded through Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. Yep. I mean, you know, he, I know he's, his wife. I mean, McGahn, yeah. his wife Shannon. They've been in the conservative movement for twenty years. Yeah. Yep. So, so he's no uh, no leftist liberal or anything. No. But to see him behind a microphone under oath describing what happened. Boy, it, it's such a different world when, when you're just reading a report versus seeing a witness take a sta- take the stand. Mm-hmm. That, that, right? And then the other, obviously, the, the big one is Mueller. Will right. Mueller testify? Um, I do think he will. We're starting to see inklings now that although everyone's acting like, oh yeah, it's fine with me, it's fine with me, it looks like the White House may be objecting behind the scenes on some incomprehensible basis that I don't understand. But I don't think there's any way to prevent Mueller from testifying long term. They might be able to delay it. But, boy, that's going to be interesting. And I think the big question there is, does Mueller just sort of stay true to his reputation, which is just, it's in my report, read my report, Mm -hmm. or does he expand a little bit? And I think he might be willing – look, he sent that letter to Barr. That was a very unusual step for him or really anyone to take within DOJ. So if he expands on obstruction, if he actually answers the question, if not for the policy, the DOJ policy, would you have charged uh, obstruction? Right. If he answers that, that could be a game changer. And I also – want to hear about his 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 view of how Barr 
uh, misstated his findings. Right. So well, what, those, what I is, think, are the big things to watch. What's preventing McGahn first from testifying? Yep. He's not a, a government employee anymore. He's a private citizen. Yeah. So what's stopping that? And I know Mueller, he's still employed by the Department of Justice, so they do have some control over that. But once he yep. leaves government service, yep. I'm assuming there's nothing to stop him at that point. So, so let me take those in the opposite. On Mueller, there, there was reporting late last week that the White House was now invoking executive privilege over the whole Mueller report, which is – I don't even understand. How, how do you invoke executive privilege over something you can buy at Barnes & Noble? Exactly. I, I mean <laughs> I, know, I know exactly what executive privilege is, but I cannot at all apply it to how, how it would prevent Mueller from testifying. Now, I do see an argument, a legal argument, and one that I think ultimately does not succeed, but I do understand the argument with respect to McGahn, even though he no longer – works in the public sector. The argument is I, as president, had conversations with you as White House counsel that qualify for executive privilege. That's what executive privilege is. It covers conversations between the president and his close advisors. And therefore, even after you leave, that privilege still holds. And, and so, and, I, and the president does get to control exertion of that privilege. The thing is, I don't think it stands up here. First of all, I think he's, again, I think he's waived it by allowing McGahn sure. to speak with Mueller. It do, no privilege applies when, when a crime is being discussed. And I think the argument here would be the president was, as Mueller found, discussing obstruction or potential obstruction with, uh, yeah. with McGahn. Mm -hmm. and, and then, um, uh, Oh, and, and under Nixon, the Richard Nixon precedent, what that case told us is, yes, executive, executive privilege exists and it is a thing, but it's meant to protect military secrets, national security secrets. It's not intended as an overall shield against liability, and, and these conversations obviously had nothing to do with national security or intel or anything like that. So I, I see it's a losing argument, but right. I get where they're coming from. But do you think they're doing that just as a delay tactic? Like they, oh, yeah. They have to know that this is legally dubious and that it would never 100%. stand up. So they're just trying to, trying to delay, delay delay hoping people yeah. forget about it and you know next thing you know it's a new election and but in your but but in your you know a few minutes ago we were talking about if they bring it to court that yep. it can be fast tracked and then that that uh, tactic yep. kind of falls apart it's all about delay, yeah. And even in that case, it was fast tracked. The Trump, the, the 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 White House attorneys furiously objected to the fast tracking of it. So uh, yeah, look, delay delay only only favors one side here. It only favors the executive branch. That they, they have every interest to delay, to drag it out, to get it either to the election or close to the election or past the election. But every day that passes sort of weakens Congress's hand and strengthens the executive branch's hand. Well, it the saga continues, and um, <laughs> we we wait with bated breath for both McGahn and Mueller to testify at some point. I just don't see how that, that doesn't happen. Um, and the president has been, uh, you know, tweeting away. I call him uh, Trumper tantrums. He's been throwing Trumper tantrums on Twitter lately uh, about some of these things. Like the closer we get to the nerve, you know, you know, you kind of know when things are bothering yeah. the president because he puts it all out there. He telegraphs it on, on Twitter all the time. So he's clearly bothered by Mueller testifying, by McGahn testifying. And clearly bothered by Amash coming out now with the um, with his Im uh, impeachment viewpoints on things, making it bipartisan. I think he's worried. The more, like yeah. you said, the more that people hear and see the Mueller report and what's actually in it, the more people go, "Holy shit!" Okay, wait a <laughs> you know, like, wait, whoa, yeah. you know, whoa. Whether it's the obstruction part or the obstruction part, like, none of it's okay. And as long as the more that people start to see, this is actually what happened, not what they say on Hannity, but this yep. is what that what happened. It's it's not not good for the president. 
I, I sort of have this weird like what, what if what if they ask, like what if Trump asked me to advise him right like what would I tell him right and I think the first thing I would tell him is like act like you won like right just be cool about it man like you know you're you're the deal guy like have a poker face here like you know what I mean if if the president from the first day the Mueller report had come out had simply issued the, uh, a statement like this like I, I thank Mueller and his team for their hard work I think we've learned some really important things from their findings. Um, and and uh, I'm gratified that, that he cleared me more or less, um, and I'm moving on. And that was it. Like, wouldn't that uh, wouldn't that have, have played much better than him freaking out still yes. and still attacking Mueller and still yes. ha- having temper tantrums in public, right? I mean, because everyone knows it's human nature that y- y- you freak out about something that you're worried about. That's so correct. He's having a hard time sort of uh, uh, suppressing that urge. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just par for the course for him. He's he is who he is, and um, yep. you know. And, and as we say in political communications, if you're explaining, you're losing. Yeah, and uh, yep. it just seems like that. Uh, every, that's happening every day with him. He's losing this argument considerably, despite the cover he gets from conservative media and folks over at Fox. So, Ellie Honig, yep. always a pleasure, my friend. Make sure to check Ellie's column, Cross Exam, out. Also, his segments on Sundays with Anna Cabrera, where he gets to answer viewer questions. Send him a question. Where can they send you a question? How how can people ask you stuff? So if you yeah, go on to CNN's website, Opinions. If you, if you just if you just do Ellie Honig Cross Exam CNN. You can click on any of my columns. There's a little form within the column where you just fill out your name and, and send me questions. I love getting them. The questions have been fantastic. We've gotten them from all over the world, countries all over the world, states all over the United States. Whatever's on your mind, fire away. Awesome. Thank you so much, <laughs> Ellie Honig, my fellow Jersey guy. Uh, keep you up got it. Work, my friend. As always, a big thank you to Ellie. So much fun, so knowledgeable, and breaks things down so we can understand them and know why everybody should care. So be sure to follow Ellie in his cross-exam on CNN. So next up, as promised, is former federal prosecutor Glenn Kirshner. He's a 30-year veteran of the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia, who's the head of homicide there, homicide prosecutions. And he's also a six-year Army JAG officer. So he knows a thing or two about war crimes and prosecuting members of the military, because he actually did that. And I just really thought it was important to bring him on to get his perspective on, on the idea of Trump floating pardons for war criminals, essentially. So let's welcome Glenn Kirshner. So I felt it was really important, given what's going on in the news this week, to have someone on who not only has prosecutorial experience, but also that has military prosecutorial experience. And that's why I've, I've invited Glenn Kirshner on. Uh, he's a 30-year veteran federal prosecutor. Um, he's also an NBC, MSNBC analyst, and he was an Army JAG officer. And I wanted to have him on to talk about Trump, um, the news out there that he's considering some of these pardons of military guys that are accused of war crimes and other things, and just how that's resonating right now with people who are in the military, were in the military, what that means, and whether that's something that's patriotic or not. Um, I suspect Glenn has a different point of view. And also, we're going to talk a little bit about this Deutsche Bank case that, that just came out concerning President Trump and Jared Kushner and some suspicious, suspicious activity. So, Glenn, welcome to Honestly Speaking with Tara. Thank you so much for taking the time. 
Hey, thanks for having me on, Tara. I appreciate it. So let's start with Deutsche Bank. Um, The New York Times reported that there were some suspicious financial activities flagged by employees of Deutsche Bank, which is a huge multinational bank that has been in trouble in the past for Russian money laundering activities, but it's also the only major bank that will do business with Donald Trump. And uh, we can we can uh, pontificate as to why that is or not, but Deutsche Bank is, is, has had its problems in the past. And apparently there were employees who saw suspicious financial activity on the part of Donald Trump and Jared Kushner during 2016 and 2017 and felt that it should be reported, but they were thwarted by upper management in the bank. Uh, what were your thoughts about that, and especially as someone who's worked as a U.S. attorney for many years? Um, does that raise suspicions for you? Yeah, it sure looks like the fix was in, and Deutsche Bank, um, you know, at all costs, wanted, wanted to continue doing business with high-value uh, clients like Trump and Kushner. You know, when I read the New York Times reporting yesterday, um, it's it's pretty shocking when Deutsche Bank would sort of disregard its own computer system because, you know, in the first instance, there are these algorithms that all of these major financial institutions run on their customers and the transactions that pass through their bank. And so apparently these computer algorithms picked up some really suspicious activity on the accounts of Trump and Kushner, some of which involve transfers to Russian individuals and Russian accounts. So what happens is once the computers basically um, spit out a report saying, hey, you know, these transactions are of concern, then the sort of human element comes in. And there was a woman who was a um, money laundering expert at Deutsche Bank, sort of an internal investigator. She then took these computer reports and did her own investigation. She concluded that these were suspicious um, transactions by Trump and Kushner. She put together a report complete with supporting documentation and recommended to the bank leadership that suspicious transaction. That's where this thing stopped. It looks like some executive or somebody in the hierarchy of Deutsche Bank killed the, any further reporting that would cause the Treasury Department to look into what in the world Trump and Kushner were up to. So um, fortunately, it's come to light now, and there are actually some congressional subpoenas that are being litigated in court presently to see whether Congress is going to get its hands on the financial information from Deutsche Bank. And hopefully the judge will rule in favor of transparency um, and will give that material to Deutsche, uh, to, um, to Congress. But, you know, these are, this, this is, you know, potential criminal problem number 85 for the president. (laughs) And we'll just have to see how this one plays out. I, I just think that this story isn't getting enough attention because it's like criminal suspicious activity event number God knows what at this point with these people. Mm-hmm. But why this is so I think is so important is because we I've always said follow the money when it comes to Trump right. and Kushner and their his very unusual behavior toward Russia. Um, you know the Russians have been financing Trump for years and. You know, when you start to get at that level and and when we find out now that the suspicious activities were between 
Kushner and Russians. Well, who were these mm-hmm. Russian individuals? You know, what was it? And it was interesting that Tammy McFadden, that was the woman who was the whistleblower that you were talking about, she was ultimately fired when she brought this up, yep. which makes it yep. even smell worse because she was she had been a, an, an awarded employee before, a decorated employee. She'd worked at Deutsche Bank for many years and was retaliated against for bringing this up. And that just makes it smell even worse to me. And I just think that, it, that you know, Congress should com- definitely move forward with the subpoenas on this. And there's a reason why Trump and his folks have been repeatedly uncooperative when it comes to being transparent about his financial history. And this is just another example. Yeah. And there are two judges right now who are deciding the very issue of whether these congressional subpoenas for Trump's financials uh, are going to be delivered to Congress. One is Judge Mehta in D.C. federal court. and The other is Judge Ramos up in New York this Wednesday. He will hear whether these uh, financial uh, matters should be subjected to a subpoena uh, from both Deutsche Bank and Capital One. And I'm optimistic. I watched Judge Mehta in court last Tuesday basically take Trump's lawyer, William Consovoy, to task and take down every argument he tried to offer about why, you know, Congress ought not be allowed to issue these subpoenas. And hopefully we're going to see a pro-transparency ruling from Judge Mehta this week and then hopefully one from Judge uh, Judge, um, Ramos up in New York soon thereafter. Well, that's good. I'm glad to see that these things are in the pipeline and that although Trump has seemingly um, skirted the judicial branch, I mean, the uh, the legislative branch so far Mm -hmm. with Congress not quite doing their jobs yet, but trying, um, the judicial branch is another, a whole other beast. And um, I'm glad to see that, uh, that, that, that Trump hasn't completely corrupted that part yeah, of the, the state of our courts yet. is strong. As far as I'm concerned, I spent 30 years in our courts and they remain strong and they remain governed by the rule of law. And frankly, they hate governmental misconduct. So I'm optimistic that our courts will get it right. Well, thank God for our founding fathers having enough foresight to create three branches of co-equal government for reasons just like this. Checks and balances mm-hmm. folks will, are still working despite Trump's attempt to try to undermine the whole thing. <laughs> That's good. Mm-hmm. That makes me feel good that you have confidence in, in the system, given your, your level of experience. Well, here's something that um, is a little less optimistic, unfortunately, is this story that's come out now that Donald Trump is considering using his pardon power to pardon a bunch of military men who have been accused or convicted of pretty significant crimes, but basically war crimes. And uh, what caught my attention was your tweet storm about this. And um, and I want I'm just going to read a couple of, of the things that you tweeted. And I encourage people to check out your your Twitter feed. Um, but you said it's rarely an easy decision to prosecute a soldier, particularly for crimes committed during a time of war or otherwise in a hostile environment. But we expect, indeed demand, that our soldiers not commit murder, war crimes, atrocities while in military service. You go on to say, military commanders and prosecutors often agonize over decisions whether to charge a soldier with a criminal offense. That is in part because we recognize the sacrifices soldiers make for their country, putting their lives on the line to protect our people and our freedoms. But when a decision ultimately is made to court-martial a soldier, the system takes great pains to ensure soldiers receive excellent legal representation and fair trials. And you go on to talk about the fact that that Trump 
thinking about pardoning these guys as some kind of twisted Memorial Day celebration, in your words, was just too much for you to stay silent on. As a six-year former Army JAG officer, talk to me about why these pardons are so upsetting to you, or potential pardons. Yeah, when I opened up that sort of string tweet with it makes me sick. It, it really does make me sick as a former Army JAG prosecutor. Um, you know, we require a lot of our soldiers, particularly in hostile environments. And, you know, that's why we do agonize as Army JAG prosecutors and as commanders of soldiers who are allegedly um, have, have been involved in criminal wrongdoing. We agonize over um making sure that we treat soldiers fairly. One quick example, back in the 80s, I was a prosecutor up at Fort Richardson, Alaska, 6th Infantry Division, and I can remember to this day agonizing over whether to charge a soldier who hurt somebody pretty badly in a bar fight with an aggravated assault. Because listen, on the one hand, we want our soldiers to be trained killers. So on the other hand, you can't expect them to be choir boys or choir girls, because those two things don't often go hand in hand. And But it's because we demand both things of our soldiers. We demand that they be law abiding and that they not commit war crimes and atrocities um, that you have to look very carefully before you pull the trigger, figuratively speaking, and charge somebody for something that they did in a hostile environment. However, when we see things that go on overseas, for example, like um, the the soldier that's already been pardoned by Trump, um, whose name is Michael uh, Behenna, I believe, mm-hmm. who was convicted of murdering an Iraqi prisoner. And, you know, when you read the account of what happened, it's clear that that was just flat out retaliation because some of Lieutenant Behenna's uh, fellow soldiers had been killed. So you all, we, we all understand right. how emotions are going to run extremely high under those circumstances. But what Bahena did was he took control of the Iraqi prisoner who was suspected of being involved, but could not be shown based on the evidence to have been involved. And he just took retaliation into his own hands. He had him stripped naked and he executed him. He was convicted after I am certain, Tara, that long, hard um, thought went into whether he should be charged in the first instance. And the entire military justice system decided this was a criminal offense and the lieutenant must be charged. He was charged. He was convicted. His cases went through the appellate courts. They affirmed his conviction. I mean, There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who were involved in these decisions, and they did what seems to be the right thing. And then Trump comes in in one fell swoop and pardons him, which, you know, it it is disrespectful of the entire military criminal justice system that he would swoop in and pardon somebody who was convicted of murder and whose conviction was upheld on appeal. Not only that, it really is disrespectful and dangerous for the 99.9% of law-abiding service men and women who are under very difficult circumstances serving in hostile environments, and they're obeying the law. They're not violating the Uniform Code of Military Justice. It's disrespectful 
to them as well, and it puts them in greater danger if the other countries that we are deployed to believe that our soldiers are going to run amok with impunity and, and allow, be allowed to engage in war crimes, uh, executing not only people they may perceived to have done something wrong, but executing civilians. And we've seen some incidents of our soldiers executing civilians. Um, and now Trump is contemplating pardoning them as well, like in the Blackwater, the Blackwater case. Blackwater case, so, right. Yeah. So there, there are so many things to dislike and not just not just as a veteran, but just as an American, as a career prosecutor, as a citizen. There's so many things that are so offensive in what the president is trying to do by threatening to pardon war criminals in some twisted, grotesque Memorial Day celebration. You know, that uh, Blackwater case I'm very familiar with because um, when it happened in uh, 2007, I think that was, um, Mm -hmm. some of the some of the Blackwater lobbyists lobbied on behalf of of their people to the congressman I worked for, who was Dana Rohrabacher at the time. And although Dana has done many things I disagree with since I left his office, um, I know that working for him more times than not was trying to do the right thing. And he would listen and and give give, um, an audience to people to plead their case. And if he could help the little guy, he would. And I remember kind of vacillating about that that Blackwater case and and thinking, well, you know, what... It's, it's tough, the fog of war, what are you supposed to do? But then as it, as more facts came out about it, it was it became more troubling to me. And I know that you were a U.S. attorney in, uh, an, an assistant U.S. attorney in the D.C. office, correct? And that's who prosecuted right. that case? Yes. And you didn't Our work on it? Our office did. Right. Well, you didn't work on it directly. I, I, Your office did, right? Yeah, I didn't. Now, I was chief of homicide at the time, but that case was basically a terror, uh, quasi-terrorism case. It was brought by our National Security Division um, in federal court. Uh, I did not have any formal involvement in the case. A remarkable uh, federal prosecutor named Pat Martin tried it, uh, tried it three times, in fact. Um, right. And uh, But, you know, when, when you talk about people trying to spin this as something that happens in the fog of war, mm-hmm. and we ought to be, you know, we ought to expect the, and these weren't even soldiers. These were right. civilian contractors, right. most or, or all of whom were former uh, military members, military, yeah. and they worked, worked for the, uh, the Blackwater, Blackwater firm. Um, this was not a fog of war kind of thing because, you know, just based on the public facts that were developed during the trial, so I'm not talking based on any inside information, um, you know, the, the, the person who started this, I can't call it a firefight because it wasn't a firefight. It was armed Blackwater contractors firing at and killing and wounding unarmed Iraqi civilians. Mm -hmm. The person who kicked this incident off is somebody named Nicholas Slatton, somebody who, as the evidence showed, was dying to kill Iraqi citizens and civilians because he believed they were, quote, animals. He believed their lives were, quote, worth nothing. This is the mentality of Nicholas Slatton as he's out there with his assault rifle. And you know what he does, Tara? He sees a car approaching a checkpoint. And there was, you know, all of these cars had to go through multiple checkpoints just for the Iraqi citizens to get to work every day and to get home after work every evening. So a car was approaching a checkpoint. In that car, there was a young man driving his mother, who was in the front passenger seat, to a hospital where she worked as a doctor. And as it pulled up to the checkpoint, flattened open fire for no 
lawful reason. Mm -hmm. Executing the young man who was driving, ultimately other Blackwater contractors opened fire as well. They killed 14 Iraqi citizens, none of whom were armed, and injured another 17. This was not a firefight. This was a one-sided massacre. Right. Now, mind you, some of the Blackwater contractors did not open fire because they knew this wasn't a firefight, and they testified this was an unlawful killing. This was a massacre. And think about the courage, and and I'm going to use the word courage. You know, we think people should always do the right thing when they step into court and give testimony, but it took courage for some of those Blackwater contractors to come in and testify against their own teammates. Oh, yeah. About how this was true. Yeah. This was an unlawful attack and massacre. So, and Trump is now contemplating, I guess, issuing pardons to Slatten and the others who were convicted of that incident. Um, which I'm glad again, does it I'm glad that you gave those details for people to to know because they need to be reminded of the atrocities, the level of them. We're not talking about someone who you know took an unauthorized picture inside a, a, a nuclear sub or you know or sending right. an email these were pretty significant war crimes uh, and people need to remember that and also people who don't know blackwater was founded and run by eric prince eric prince mm-hmm. is knee deep in the russia um controversy as well with some questionable activity and his sister is betsy devos who is the current Secretary of Education. So it's all very incestuous. It's not an accident. I don't, I don't, Trump is picking. Yeah, and I don't. I don't find cons- conspiracies around every corner. But what you've just yeah. laid out there, Paris, says it all, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Those are just so, the facts, folks. Just the facts. Yeah. Yeah. So and, and think about it. This is not even Trump pardoning soldiers. This is Trump pardoning civilian contractors who worked for Eric Prince, Betsy DeVos's brother. I mean, it couldn't be more transparent or incestuous, politically incestuous, or in my opinion, corrupt and, and an abusive power, presidential power. Absolutely. Um, and and, the, and the, the unfortunate part of this is that the pardon power is a plenary power given to the president under the Constitution that really has no check or balance. And so if he wants to, no he check can. balance. Yep, yep. It has no check or balance, but that doesn't mean once exercised, it couldn't be an unlawful exercise of presidential power. I've used the example. Let's assume he set a kiosk, set up a kiosk in the foyer of the White House, and people could come in and pay him a million (laughs) dollars to pardon their loved one who Mm -hmm. had been convicted of something. Okay, that is his plenary power under the Constitution. He can issue that pardon, but it would still be corrupt and it would still be criminal. So just because the Constitution says he can do something, it doesn't mean he can never be held accountable for doing it in an abusive or criminal way. I'm so glad you brought that point up because a lot of people question, you know, where do we draw the line? And I recently mm-hmm. talked to Ellie Honig, who's a CNN mm-hmm. political, um, a legal analyst for CNN and former uh, assistant um, AUSA in Jersey and New York. And he, he contemplated the same thing. He was like, at what mm-hmm. point like, can people pay? $25,000, you know, pardon shopping. Hey, here's 25 right. grand or a million, depending on who you are and buy a pardon. And yeah, that would be criminal. So I'm glad that you, yeah. you two are on the same page w- with that, that it's, it's not completely untouchable. Um, but, and of course, Trump is going to push it to the, to the line, you know, to the limit because that's what he does with everything. Some of the, the other, the, there's three main cases between, well, two others besides the Blackwater one 
you have this uh, special operations chief, Edward Gallagher, who is mm-hmm. um, accused of, of stabbing an injured Iraqi teen and shooting civilians. And it's my understanding that fellow SEALs testified against him in that case as well. That was pretty cut and dry. Mm-hmm. And, and, or were, I think he's going to trial, so it hasn't been at trial yet, but they were, they gave statements that supported the fact that he, in fact, you know, did these things and it was troubling enough. And that's a big deal, too. It takes a lot for fellow yeah. SEALs to, to testify against one another. You know, I come from a law enforcement family. I understand the blue wall of silence. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, never are we more vital as prosecutors than when we are holding law enforcement or military members accountable for breaking the law. You know, it, I, I took no pleasure in declining to bring a case as the chief of homicide because I thought law enforcement either didn't do the job they needed to do for me to bring that, that case, or worse, they had perhaps overstepped somebody's Fourth Amendment um, rights, and so I couldn't use certain evidence that they acquired. Now, mind you, that happened in an extreme minority of the cases, but when it happened, it was my job to put to, to, to you know be a check and balance against that. And then I also had the benefit of working with those same officers and saying, look, folks, this is how you can avoid, you know, uh, having the same problem in the future. And, you know, I, you know, I, I taught Miranda and custodial interrogation classes for 15 years to the Metropolitan Police Department, and, and they are some of the best of the best. They really are. So I don't want to leave anybody with the misimpression that they're violating people's rights left and right. right. But never are we more vital than when we're keeping that kind of thing in check. That goes for military members who commit crimes. It may be hard for us to do, but nothing is more important than for us to keep that in check. And as you say, I'm not that familiar with the Gallagher case. I read a little bit about it, mm-hmm. but the president is so undermining the fellow soldiers who do the hard work and the courageous work of testifying about their brother and sister soldiers when they commit crimes. He just un- he just cuts their legs out from under them by pardoning that criminal soldier or veteran. So it's lose, lose, lose. And, you know, I guess it makes Trump feel good. I hope, you know, this is the hyper cynical view. I hope he's not sending the message that in the future, if y'all, if you all engage in these kind of atrocities, I got your back because guess what? If I choose not to leave office, even if I lose an election, I'm going to be calling on you all to help me out. That sounds like crazy you know, but not really, Glenn. Stuff. Not I know, really, I know. because the president has telegraphed this in the already in his own words. I remember a couple weeks ago he sent out one of those lunar tweets where he talked about, or, or I don't know if it was a tweet or if it was in one of his little uh, press gaggles where he made the comment mm-hmm. about um, how he's got the cops and bikers for Trump and the military yeah. at the ready in case something ever went down, to, something to that effect, oh. basically yeah. implying what you just. said. So that's what in his sick, twisted mind, he seems to think that he can press a button and these folks are just going to disobey their their orders and and engage in unlawful acts because he's got their back in case they do it. I don't know. So it's really not that far off, Glenn, unfortunately. Yeah, and I agree. And here's where there's an important principle that we're taught when we come on active duty. Not only as soldiers are we obligated to obey lawful orders. But we are obligated as soldiers to disobey unlawful mm-hmm. orders, which is a tough box to put a soldier in because he or she disobeys that order at their own peril. Because if they're wrong 
and it was a lawful order, well, then they're going to end up being court-martialed. But I think if a criminal president refuses to accept election results and vacate the White House, if he calls on the military, I think the military will stand up and say, Mr. President, Mr. Former President, we are obliged to disobey unlawful orders. Your order is unlawful. And you know what? There aren't enough Slattens or Gallaghers in the world to undermine our military. I have great faith and confidence in our soldiers. Well, thank God for that. And I I do too. I've done a lot of work with military, federal law enforcement. I'm married to a federal officer. My grandfather was a 40-year veteran police officer and a World War II vet. So I have the utmost respect for the military. And, and, you know, more times than not, I default to pro-military. They can do no wrong until they do. And you have to be honest about that. And um, one of my favorite movies is um, Crimson Tide. I watch it every time it comes on and there's a there's a scene there where they talk about the great military strategist Carl von Clausewitz and they have a whole conversation about that and this movie came out 20 something years ago I was still in college I've had a lot more experience in things now with military and working on Capitol Hill and different rules and laws so I appreciate von Clausewitz a lot more now and I know that he talks about something called the Holy Trinity. He's like fixated, obsessed with the relationship between civilian society and the military. And I look at von Clausewitz and his philosophy on this compared to what Trump is doing. And it just makes me feel like and, and you know, I'm, you probably agree, but you can you can give me your thoughts on this. But do you just do you think that Trump's behavior with this, it just sows distrust of civilian leadership within the military, that this is Danger, uh, very dangerous for, for Trump to engage in because it could do that and it would upset that holy trinity. Yeah, sowing distrust is what Trump is all about. You know, whether it's in our civilian law enforcement agencies, the Department of Justice, the FBI, whether it's in, uh, you know, the, the military and, as you say, the civilian leadership of the military. You know, it, it, I think one of the worst things about Trump is that he's commander in chief of our armed forces. Yeah, no kidding. You know, that it, it's bad enough that he apparently lied to get out of military service. Oh, yeah. I call have, him a silver you know, spoon but, draft oh, dodger. When I, exactly. I say that, Bones that's Spurs exactly his, what he was. Right. Yeah. Oh, he can he can play all the golf he wants, but he couldn't set foot on a battlefield to defend our country. He's but so the fact yeah, that he's now it. commander in chief of the armed forces. And when I see him trying to gin up perhaps a false, you know, hostile uh, act by Iran, I would see that if he tried to send troops to Iran to fight and perhaps die, I would see it as the ultimate sin against our country and our citizens and our military, because it would be nothing but a distraction from the domestic problems that he is combating every day. Frankly, domestic problems, that will be his downfall. He will fail and he will fall because he's his own worst enemy and he's corrupt to the core. And it's going to happen at some point. And it's been too long coming. And Bob Mueller's you know, report, particularly volume two, is like a high crimes and misdemeanors jamboree <laughs> when you really dig into it. Yeah. So he will fall and he will fail, in my opinion. It's just a matter of time. But he ought, he better not be allowed to order troops into combat in Iran, because that will be the ultimate unwarranted distraction. I When I first saw that report about Iran and what was going on, I was like, what in the wag the dog BS is this now? You know, yep, like, what yep. are we doing? Um, this is nothing to play around with. And it is a disgrace that Donald Trump is the, the commander in chief of our honorable men and women in the armed forces. 
forces, given that he has zero respect for what they do. He's a coward. And someone who's that much of a malignant narcissist who seems to get off on the idea of having this kind of power, that is the absolute wrong person to have that kind of power. And I've never rooted against a president of the United States more than I have for Don, for, against Donald Trump. I don't, I, he's got to go, whether it's through- And, it's, and it's sad, Tara. It's, it's, it's sad that this is- absolutely sad. Yeah. That's right. It, that this it is where we me. are, because frankly, I, I'm not a political guy. I operated under the Hatch Act for 30 years. The only thing I ever did was vote. Beyond that, I really, I frankly have never been all that interested in politics. You know, I'm not right and left. I'm right and wrong. And whoever's doing wrong, I'm going to call them out. And, you know, it just so happens that Trump is is the one who has been doing wrong since the day he was sworn in and before. So yep. this is not about politics. I, I really understand that people have, you know, valid opinions on both sides of the political aisle. And that, frankly, is of little interest and consequence to me. But, you know, it's all about law and order and having faith in your elected leaders. And we are at a low point, I think, in our country's history right now. But I do think Trump will fail. And I think that our country is resilient enough to come back from this. At times, I question that. But at other times, I have hope where I say, no, I think we can come back from this. If we if we bounced back from a civil war, we can bounce back from this. But it's as long as long as people hold this guy accountable and the people who are hypocrites and enablers of him, they've all got to be held accountable and never, never normalize this. I want to end on a happier note because this is such a (laughs) downer topic that I'm like, okay, we've got to lighten it up a little bit. I I can't. Um, Two things. And they are movie related. So, um, A Few Good Men is one of my favorite movies in the whole world. And I know a lot of people, uh, that's good to hear because since you were an actual JAG officer, I want you to tell me how realistic or unrealistic the courtroom scenes were at the end of the movie. The most famous, you know, damn right I I ordered the code red and you you can't handle (laughs) the truth. Is any of that possible? Because I watched that and I go, there's no way. But what parts of that movie as a JAG officer did you say, oh my God, that is so true. They got that right. And what parts were you like, no freaking way would that ever happen? You want me on that wall. You need me on that wall. So (laughs) here's my take on that. First of all, you know, I always was a little bit disappointed that the defense attorney, Tom Cruise, is Mm -hmm. the hero and poor Kevin Bacon, the prosecutor. (laughs) Basically, they walked all over him. Right. Um, So, listen, it's not that realistic because there are not that many Perry Mason moments and rarely do we get somebody, you know, either in military courts or in civilian courts to admit something quite so dramatic on the stand. It it happens from time to time, but it's not uh, it's not usual. But, you know, I will say they kind of got the the military courtroom stuff largely right. I mean, um, it really it, it all it is all about the truth and it's all about holding accountable, you know, a private first class if he or she broke the law or a full bird colonel if he or she broke the law. So, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've seen that movie and I, I love it. And, it's a great movie. you know, I, I, I think it largely gets things right. And I think it, it does a service to the importance of law and order because and it does highlight the fact that, you know, it, we, we, we require a lot of soldiers. 
and we require them to put their lives on the line. But you know what? We also require them to stand up for what's right, even if they see one of their fellow soldiers doing wrong. And it takes special people to be able to do all that we require them to do as soldiers. And I think most of our soldiers are up to the task. That's that's great. And um, I I uh, when I, I think I was in I was 16 when that movie came out, 16 or 17. And that movie really made me want to go to law school and become a lawyer. I ultimately mm. didn't go that way because I got involved in politics and um, decided to I went to school in G, at GW in D.C. Mm-hmm. And just it was so hard to go back to school. And I said, oh, I can still do it. I can still do it. And then now I'm over 40 and it's like, I'm not going to law school now as much as I as much as I wanted to, and I still think I would have been a damn good lawyer. Um, you know, life took me in a different path, but I try to approach things from a legal perspective. But that movie was very influential um, on me just because of the the elements of right and wrong and making tough decisions and standing up for what's right. It was, it's still one of my favorite movies in the whole world, just like Crimson Tide. Similar gives you patriotic decisions. goosebumps, right? It does. It's, you know, similar yeah. tough decisions. You know, you do, do you obey orders that you know are morally wrong, but you know, it's bigger than you. There's so many things that, that the, both yeah. of those movies encompass that I think everyone can learn, learn a lesson from. But as we close, it's my understanding that someone portrays you in a movie called Georgetown that was recently shown at Tribeca Film Festival, and it stars Chris, Christoph Waltz, Vanessa Redgrave, and Annette Benning. What is that about, and how did, you, how did your character become a part of that movie? Okay, so yeah, that was Christoph Waltz's directorial debut, and it's about a murder case that I handled in Washington, D.C. Christoph Waltz plays my murderer, whose name is Albrecht Moot. It's spelled M-U-T-H, but it's pronounced like M-O-O-T, Moot. And he killed the murder his, suspect. His like he doesn't murder you. <laughs> He's the murder no, no, suspect. No, 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 no. He right? murdered. He murdered his wife, okay. who was an, an el- elderly. Um, a really accomplished woman. Um, she was in the Nebraska Journalism Hall of Fame. She was an author and a playwright. She was on various boards and commissions, including some at the White House. And he killed her and then tried to cover up the crime and make it look like something it wasn't. He was actually a career con man. They both came over originally from Germany. And he had conned, believe it or not, the Bidens, the Cheneys, mm-hmm. uh, Justice Scalia, George Soros. He was a very successful con man. So anyway, Christoph Waltz took interest in this case and uh, did a movie. I was actually at the premiere at Tribeca with the victim's family, who I have you know, gotten to know very well over the years by virtue of, of handling that, that murder case. And yeah, it premiered a couple of weeks ago, and now I think they're looking for uh, national distribution for it. The actor who plays me is a guy named Paulino Nunez, not a household name, and I don't know that this is going to be his Oscar breakout role, but (laughs) he plays plays prosecutor Kirshner. But I will tell you, when I watched the movie, they really didn't focus on the courtroom scenes. It was on the sort of uh, relationship between uh, Albrecht Moot and his wife up till the time he killed her. So there there wasn't but two or three minutes of courtroom scene so I didn't it wasn't exactly a breakout uh, moment for me but it was interesting to have one of my murder cases made into a major motion picture. Right. Well, that's that's pretty cool. And um, I, I wonder, for those who don't know, Christoph Waltz probably is most famous for his role in Inglorious Bastards. Probably a lot of people mm-hmm. know him from there. He's also German. So I wonder if the German connection was why he took an interest in it. Do you know? Could be. 
Yeah, no, it could be. I don't know what caught, but you know, if you, it got a lot of media coverage when I tried the case because the guy tried to con his way out of the trial as well in two different ways. He convinced <laughs> the mental health professionals at St. Elizabeth's Hospital that he was incompetent to stand trial, pretending to be delusional, and they mm. bought it. So I had to bring I had to bring in my own team of mental health experts to uh, disprove that. And then once we had the judge declare that he was competent to stand trial, um, he then went on a hunger strike and he starved himself from 180 pounds to 91 pounds. Oh my and gosh. he couldn't be brought, yeah, he couldn't be brought to the courtroom for the comm- commencement of his trial. So I tried him in absentia from his hospital bed, which has never been done in DC or anywhere as far as I know. And we convicted him. We had a video feed to the hospital and I convicted him in absentia when he was at his hospital bed, in his hospital bed. So there was more than one way to get him held accountable for the murder he committed and we were not going to let him get away with it so it was quite a quite an adventure for me as a prosecutor it sounds like it what a fascinating story i can't wait to see the movie i hope it i hope it gets national distribution or makes netflix or something so folks can watch yeah. it that, that's uh yeah. that's pretty cool i always wonder who would play me in a movie um people can tweet me who do you think would play me in a movie i was involved in a uh, presidential commutation effort for two Border Patrol agents, Ramos and Compion, um, from the years like 2006 through 2009, President Bush did ultimately commute them uh, in one of his last acts in office. And to this day, my involvement in my direct involvement in that is one of the greatest accomplishments of my adult life. And so I so I take the pardon and commutation process very seriously also because I see both sides of it. You know, it can be life saving. They were thankfully out of prison. They were supposed to serve 11 and 12 years in prison for bogus charges, in my opinion. And um, we were able to basically save their lives and they could see their kids grow up. Without that effort, they would have rotted away in, in prison for over a decade. And who knows what would have happened to them then. So people say that that, that case was movie worthy and I probably should have written a book about it, but I don't know. So I always wonder who would, who would, play, who would play me in the movie. I, 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 don't know. I don't know. How about, how about, how about Tyra Banks? I'll take that. Thank you very yeah. much. I will take that. I wish I were six I, I saw, feet tall. I, saw you. We, I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you in person. I saw your headshot. I'm like, okay, Tyra Banks would do a good job. <laughs> well, thank you. You, you. you are all good with me, Glenn. You are all good with me. Glenn Kirshner, it was a pleasure. Uh, I hope we get to chat again. This is our first time chatting, and it was really a, a pleasure. And I'm sorry it was on such of a downer note, but I'm glad we were yeah. able to talk a little bit about your movie. A little bit. It's always a good day. We can talk Tom Cruise and A Few Good Men and Jack Nicholson. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the, the Twitter thing is Glenn, Kirsch, Glenn Kirshner, too, if anybody wants to go. For 30 years, I never touched social media, and now I'm figuring it all out. So yes, on so Twitter, tell, so I'm going Glenn Kirshner, too. Glenn Kirshner, too. Can you spell it? Yeah, G-L-E-N-N-K-I-R-S-C-H-N-E-R. The number two. Someday I hope to be Glenn Kirshner one, but we'll see how that goes. <laughs> I think uh, I don't think anyone could. You could be number two to anyone, Glenn. Um, thank you so much, Glenn, and thank you for your service, especially as we head into Memorial Day weekend. It's important to remember those who have fallen and given their lives. Um, even though Veterans Day is for everybody, but I still like in, in Memorial Days for the folks who've given the ultimate sacrifice. But I still thank you for your service and for everyone else out there who has served. So, thanks thank so much, you, Glenn. Appreciate talking to you. All right. Thanks. That's it for this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara. Again, a big thank you to former federal prosecutor and MSNBC analyst Glenn Kirshner and to my friend Ellie Honig, former federal prosecutor and CNN legal analyst. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you to them. 
great stuff. Happy Memorial Day to everyone. Um, be sure to honor your military. Be sure to give thanks for the fact that these people sacrifice their lives for our freedoms every day. Ronald Reagan said, freedom is never more than one generation away. So from losing it, which is very, very true. So make sure to be respectful this weekend for Memorial Day on top of enjoying time with your families. I will be doing the same and I'll be back in two weeks. So there will be no episode next week. I'll be back for an episode in June, first week of June. So enjoy everything, everybody. And I'll see you in two weeks.